thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. And um, I was delighted to uh, see what the theme of the weekend was, the shared treasures, because Henry Welcome hated sharing things. He was absolutely hopeless at it. And um, he also bought an awful lot of worthless objects that had to be thrown away after he died. So instead of shared treasures, I'm going to talk about hidden stuff. Um, which is not, of course, not fair, because um, the Welcome Collection is one of the largest private collections ever created, and it's still being studied and viewed in many museums, um, at least 100 museums um, all over the UK and beyond, hold Welcome objects that were dispersed after he died, um, including the Pit Rivers and the Ashmolean. Both have um, objects from the Welcome Collection. In fact, it's hard to find a museum um, that doesn't have something from Welcome. And um, as Ken has mentioned already, this is Welcome in the centre there. Um, he was brought up in a frontier town in, in Minnesota in, in the US, and he came to the UK in his mid-twenties and set up in partnership with another American, Silas Burroughs, um, in the pharmaceuticals industry and um, created Burroughs Welcome and Company, um, which was a hugely successful drug company. Um, they were famous for their compressed medicines, which they first um, distributed uh, American-made medicines, and, and very soon they were manufacturing their own medicines, vaccines, antitoxins. Welcome was a great believer in, in research laboratories and opened um, some of the first private research laboratories in the UK to develop um, new drugs and vaccines. And one of the um, key things about these drugs were how convenient and small they were and easy to carry around. And Burroughs Welcome became particularly well known for their um, travel kits and medicine cases and first aid kits. So along the bottom there, I've just put a few of the more famous ones. The centre one is the 1910 Scott Expedition to the Antarctic, um, the 1933 Mount Everest Expedition. And the one on the left there is... Um, uh, the first transatlantic balloon flight in 1910. Um, but again, as Ken mentioned, uh, Welcome's greatest legacy is the Welcome Trust. Um, this is their relatively new headquarters uh, on the left there, um, opened in 2004 on the Euston Road. And um, the Welcome Trust is the UK's largest non-governmental source of funds for biomedical research, and I think they currently disperse about £650 million a year um, for biomedical research. They also have a very strong history of medicine um, um, line of funding. Um, and the, the um, 1930s building on the right is the building that Welcome himself oversaw um, the building of just before he died. And that's recently reopened in 2007, was completely refurbished, and has gallery space. You can see some of Welcome's things there, a tiny fraction, about 300 objects, um, and temporary exhibitions. And there's also the very well-known and uh, wonderful Welcome Library, which is... <coughs> 
um, you know, the greatest history of medicine library in the world, really, and, and based on Wellcome's own library that he collected during his lifetime. Um, so this new Wellcome Collection building is, is bringing um, Wellcome's collection back into the forefront again, but for a long time it has been something of a hidden treasure, and Wellcome was really known for, his, um, for, for the Wellcome Trust rather than for his private collection. Um, <coughs> The first thing I wanted to do was just to run through a few slides with um, quite a few pictures to give you an idea of the kinds of things that Wellcome collected. And it's a, a tiny fraction of, of the, the entire collection, and, um, but it will just give you kind of a bit of an idea of the scope. So um, surgical instruments and um, dental instruments and medical instruments of all um, ages and um, provenance. Um, Roman things right through to 19th century. Um, um, anatomical figurines and, and models, again, from all over the world, um, used for, for teaching and demonstration, um, thousands of these. Um, furniture. Welcome really loved buying furniture. Um, these are just chairs, but um, he bought all kinds of furniture, and not just medical medical-related furniture, but he just loved furniture, uh, you know, everyday furniture for houses. Uh, goodness knows where he thought he was going to put it all, because literally hundreds of tables, wardrobes, closets, desks, chairs. Um, these are just a few of the medical-related chairs, um, a birthing chair. The centre one at the top is a 19th-century exercise chair. Not really sure how that worked, but it's an interesting idea. Um, uh, a, uh, this is a Chinese torture chair. He, he bought things um, related to, to torture as well, um, and dental chairs and a child's rocking chair. Um, things like spectacles and dentures and toothbrushes. Um, on the top left is an ear trumpet, and just below that, ear defenders. Um, the, there's Chinese and Italian spectacles there. Um, smoking and tobacco, tobacco jars, matches, all kinds of ignition um, technologies and pipes from all over the world. Um, pharmacy apparatus, uh, pharmacy jars, um, also things like weights and measures and any kind of equipment that chemists and pharmacists would use. He bought entire chemists and pharmacists and rebuilt them in his museum. Um, uh, prosthetics and glass eyes and um, noses and ears and that kind of thing. Uh, human bones showing um, different surgical techniques or recovery from um, illness or trauma. Um, the top left is a, a skull that's been marked out with the lines for phrenology, reading of the character from the skull, which was very popular in the 19th century. And um, the, yeah, the one on the right is a Ghanaian skull, which has had prayers for the deceased inscribed on the cranium. Um, religious objects, religious statues, paintings, manuscripts, votive offerings, um, all kinds of things rela relating to spiritual well-being. Um, books and manuscripts. He had a huge library, which... Um, 
during his lifetime, unfortunately, was not, not open to the public, but since his death, it's come really to the forefront, and, and that is the aspect of his collection for which he's probably been most well-known because of the wonderful Welcome Library in London. Um, books and manuscripts and, and paintings from all over the world. Uh, charms and amulets. Um, there's um, a, a, a North American charm from the uh, fertility figure from the Sioux people in North America. Um, and what else have we got here? Um, Sumatran amulet is on a water buffalo bone at the top. Um, the, in some of these ones in the center of First World War charms used by um, soldiers in the First World War in the trenches. And um, the bottom left is a Sudanese um, amulet with an Arabic inscription. And all sorts of clothing and costumes. The, the headgear is what survived, but um, he bought all kinds of things from academic gowns um, to show medical doctorates and things, um, right through to um, the costumes that he found wherever he went on his travels. Um, so these are Bolivian masks, the three masks at the top, um, a North American mask, a French military cap, um, the bottom three down here are First World War protective masks, gas masks and protective masks from the First World War, um, a Portuguese executioner's mask um, and a Belgian um, scold's bridal uh, punishment uh, mask. Um, so that just gives you an idea of, of the range, but it's really just a few of the choice items um, and, a t and really a tiny fraction have been individually photographed. And this today is the reality, really, of the Welcome Collection. This is some of the storage facilities, um, it, both in the Science Museum, where, where the, the core of his collection ended up, and um, the paintings are in the Welcome Trust. Um, and you can see, I mean, just the rows of forceps, just gynecological forceps, votive offerings on the top, just trays full of spectacles. Um, so the Science Museum um, received about 100,000 objects um, from the Wellcome Trust, including 25,000 surgical instruments alone. Um, and this was after 50 years of, of sorting through Wellcome's objects and trying to rehome them, sell them, um, and, and some things were thrown away. Um, and just to try and convey, it's very hard to imagine the, the size of the operation. Um, and no one really knows how big the collection was. Um, but the, I've just put together a few ways of thinking about um, the, the different ways people have thought about the size of the collection. Um, the first is estimates of what there was in storage when he died. These estimates were put together in the 1980s um, when they reckoned that there were 12,000 packing cases and many hundreds of freestanding items, and they reckoned that that was about a million items. I've noticed recently the Wellcome Trust have started saying it's one and a half million items, so that estimate is, is going up. Um, the amount of money he spent. When I first started my um, PhD, I spent a long time going through the financial records and trying to work out how much he'd spent at auction. Um, and 
it's worth pointing out that the, he only bought some of his things from auction and a lot of things were bought privately. Um, but I reckoned he was spending between one and seven thousand pounds every month at auction. And just to take um, 1930 uh, as an example, he spent 35,000 on t more than 10,000 lots, and a lot of those lots were group lots. So there would be, you know, a group of five, ten objects in a lot. Um, um, a couple of people, um, Tilly Tansy and Roy Church, have been studying the history of the business and their estimates for total annual expenditure on the museum and library between 1928 and 1935 go from about 30,000 to 70,000. It's very hard to get to convert money from um, historic money to today's prices, but when I tried to do that online, um, they have various calculators. I got everything from 1 million to 5 million pounds um, for, for that. So um, that's the annual expenditure. Um, then you can look at just one shipment. This is one shipment welcome sent, 120 packing cases from New York to the, London in 1923. It had 42 cases of books weighing four tons, 43 cases of museum specimens weighing five tons, 26 cases of books and personal effects weighing two tons, and rather nicely, a, a case of bottled preserved fruit weighing 35 pounds. <laughs> And then the things they had to throw away. And this is just a tiny f fraction, really, of what they had to throw away. But s so many things had been hidden away in storage for so long that they were really degrading badly. Um, they'd been in there for decades. They threw away three and a half tons of swords, two and a half tons of guns, cannon, helmets, and shields, five tons of photograph albums, three tons of scrap metal, two tons of rotten wood. The, the metal, um, he, he ran an excavation in Sudan for about four years an, annually, for about four years before the First World War, and, and they think that this kind of heavy lifting equipment, he must have acquired it um, for, for some idea that he had for his, for his digging that never, never came to pass. Um, and the wood... Um, we, they, they think he was planning to um, have the cases in his great museum that he was planning um, made from this wood, um, but um, custom-made, but unfortunately it, it just rotted away. They did manage to salvage three tons of wood, which was sent to his research labs for, for reuse as furniture. And as I've already mentioned, just the amount of time it took. It took five decades, more than five decades, to sort through all, all his things and, and work out what was going to happen to it all. Um, so this is um, really the one picture we have of of welcomes things in storage and it's not actually in his storage they're at the British Museum in um, the early 1950s 1953 uh, awaiting rehoming the British Museum hosted a number of events where curators from different museums around the UK were invited to come and and select objects for their collections and this is just um, a few of of the weapons <clears throat> it's worth saying that this is after um, 6,200 weapons were sold at auction um, in, at Sotheby's just after he died. And it's also after the staff put a private advertisement in the newspaper um, 
at advertising the sale of European and Asian arms. And a gentleman responded and, and acquired these, these, these arms. And he showed up to find an entire warehouse full of, of arms um, that he described as in quite indescribable disorder. <laughs> um, and after that, they... They estimated there were 50,000 non-mechanical weapons still left um, that needed homing. Um, so what I want to talk about today is this idea of things, of things hidden, of things being in storage, hidden away. Most collections um, are about display. They're about displaying your knowledge, um, displaying your status, your taste, um, your interests, or even your wealth. Um, they're a way of communicating um, something about yourself to the wider world and learning something about the wider world and, and communicating that. And that was very much the case at the turn of the century when um, a lot of amateur and professional collectors um, were members of clubs and societies where they would bring their things regularly and, and have little presentations and displays and show people what they had and what they meant and discuss the, the, the stories behind these things. So things are really a way of generating and sharing ideas. Um, and General Pitt Rivers um, is a classic example of this kind of collecting. Here he is on, on the top right. Um, <clears throat> he used his collection to demonstrate um, an idea about the evolution of culture um, and as I'm sure you all know, he's famous for his typological approach for, for grouping objects according to their form or function. So you'd get all the spears together, all the axes together, all the drums, the flutes, um, and so on. Um, and he arranged them from what he considered to be the simplest to the most complicated, the assumption being that that represented the simplest societies moving through to the more complicated societies, and you could track that his supposed historical progression um, through the objects that people used and created. And this... Um, I've put these pictures together because this is one of Welcome's... Um, illustrations from a paper he published and it shows what he considered to be the development of hatchets and boomerangs from straight um, straight sticks through to the more angled complicated um, technology uh, and here too um, hatchets to boomerangs and I don't know it's I'm afraid it's rather small but you might this is the upper gallery of the Pitt Rivers Museum around the turn of the century with the um, the curator Henry Balfour um, admiring his his um, collection. And just on the back wall there, you might be able to see that this is um, a display of exactly these same objects. So it's rather nice because you can see Welcome, um, sorry, Pitt Rivers, um, publishing exactly how he'd arranged things in his collection. Um, Welcome also opened a museum. Um, the Welcome Historical Medical Museum opened in London in the Medical District in 1913. And this is just a few pictures of the, some of the different rooms um, in the Welcome Historical Medical Museum. Um, 
And Welcome was, was very inspired by Pitt Rivers. He said that um, he admired Pitt Rivers and wanted to emulate him. Um, and some of the displays were arranged typologically. So, for example, the display of lancets and knives would start with... It started with your fingernail, and because um, that was seen to be the most simplest kind of technology, um, either that or the most brilliant. Um, but, um, and it moved through kind of natural materials like shells and leaves through to stone tools and then finally, of course, triumphantly, the, the metal tools and the, and the, um, the recent history of, um, of medicine in the West. Um, so there were some typological displays. There were also these reconstructions. He bought entire... Um, shops and pharmacies and hospital rooms and rebuilt them in the basement of his museum. Um, there were also large sections devoted to the great men of, of, of medical science and you can see some of their portraits on the wall there on the left. And um, the, here are some of the pharmacy jars on the, on the bottom right there that he collected. But the thing about this museum... Um, is that it was always seen by Welcome as a temporary solution. He was always planning a bigger, better museum. And the other key thing is just the, the rate of acquisition. Week after week, he was buying hundreds of new things, um, things that were... Supposedly shifting his ideas about the world, and so the museum quickly, of course, becomes kind of static. While actually, the the work of the collecting is still moving on and still changing all the time, and the museum did stay open um, until 1932, when Welcome was um, approaching 80. Um, and he then closed it down and was building this new building that we've already seen on Euston Road and planning a much bigger, um, bigger and better museum. Um, but unfortunately, he, he died before, before that day came and they were just um, overwhelmed, really, trying to sort through all the things he'd acquired. So my feeling is that the displays are, are a vital insight into what Welcome was thinking, but they're not really, they're not the whole picture. Um, and it's the thousands of things that were being acquired constantly every month and then hidden away, hidden in these big storage houses um, that I wanted to think about a bit more today. And this idea of kind of secrecy and, and hoarding things and hiding things... Um, and this, this secrecy started right at the beginning, right at the outset, um, when in the sales room, in the shops and in the towns where Welcome and his team of collectors, he employed a team of collecting agents, um, where they acquired the things. So here are just a few um, ideas of the kinds of places where Welcome acquired things. You never knew where a hidden gem was going to crop up. So he went to um, auction sales, um, antique shops, pawnbrokers, um, book barrows and markets. Um, and he had a team of people who were, who were buying things for him. And his his, he wanted a lot of things because he wanted to create a research collection and he was interested in everyday things and he wanted things that were as cheap as he could possibly um, get them. Um, so this not only meant pursuing every avenue possible, um, 
It also meant that to get a good price, you had to pretend that you weren't interested and that you weren't um, a very wealthy collector. Um, so Welcome always dressed down when he went out shopping. Um, here he is um, in his flat cap and his car off on a trip. He loved motor cars and was one of the earliest um, um, owners of motor cars. Um, and... Um, he used to say that the, he used to tell friends to dress down if they wanted to come shopping with him, and he say he'd say the higher the hat, the higher the price. Um, so he and he used false names and false identities. Um, two of his favourite names at auction when he bid at auction, which was increasingly rare, but in the early days he did bid at auction, and used the name Wilton and Willis. Um, in the hope that people wouldn't know who he was. Um, he also increasingly sent his caretakers and warehouse attendants to auction houses to bid for him because they looked ordinary and, and down at heel and, and the comp hopefully the competitors, his competitors wouldn't know who they were bidding against and hopefully the auctioneers wouldn't know who they were um, selling things to and they wouldn't put the prices up. I mean, of course, <laughs> the auctioneers knew exactly what was going on and um, it didn't really work, but welcome always hung on to this idea that there had to be secrecy and um, false identities. Um, he also sent his sales reps from the pharmaceutical business to spy on, on chemists um, and um, hospitals where there might be interesting old equipment that he would like to get his hands on. So here's um, a picture of some of the sales reps around the turn of the century and then the bottom picture on the right is um, the, the museum staff. Um, and, and on the left I've just put a little picture of a, of a chemist's um, shop because Welcome actually bought this entire fittings, the entire fittings of this shop. Um, in the end, he persuaded the guy to sell up. Um, <clears throat> but these these people were very used to going into shops and um, auction rooms under false identities. Welcome even bought um, a fake. A company. He bought a premises in London and set it up as a fake company called Epworth and Company. Um, and the building was entirely empty. It just was there to receive de deliveries, and the staff would go specifically to receive deliveries for Welcome's collection. And for a long time, it worked, and no one knew who Epworth and Company were um, until. One rather bemused um, book dealer um, who had wondered who Epworth were and why he never met anyone from this company, and yet they seemed to have endless money and just want more and more books. Um, and he only worked it out. He actually went to the building and, and looked through the window and tried to see um, who was there and who was in there. Um, and he only worked it out years later when some books were returned to him unwanted. Um, and unfortunately, there'd been a slip-up because they were wrapped in Burroughs' welcome paper. And he, then he realised what was going on. Um, so this was all, all these things were a ploy to try and keep prices down, to try and convince people you didn't think things were worth very much um, in the first place. And so it was almost like a, a business built on kind of underhand tactics, where the profits were books and objects and pictures. Um, and the theme of hiding things um, continues, of course, in the, the storage facilities. 
<clears throat> this is a plan that the buildings were demolished after the war, but this is a plan of um, Wellcome's main storage complex um, from 1928. Before 1928, he basically just leased houses around London. He had a, at least nine properties around London that were full of objects, um, he, including a big laundry site that he... Um, he kept on. Um, he also stored things in, at the business's manufacturing premises in Kent. That was full of, uh, full of his collection too. And also at um, one of the big department stores, he rented storage space um, from one of the big department stores in London. But in 1928, they decided they really had to try and consolidate all these different locations, and they acquired um, the Willesden storage facility in northwest London. <coughs> And you can see it's based around these different little courtyards where objects would come in <coughs> every day. Um, and things were literally packed up to the ceilings um, in this place. And um, I'm going to put up a couple of long quotes, but I'm going to read them out, so I hope you'll excuse the, the text. But I just thought it would be nice to hear some of the voices of the people who worked, who worked at Willesden in the late 1920s. <coughs> The factory was in a district unsurpassed for sordidness and desolation. It lay between a tannery and an anchovy essence factory, and there were appalling smells, especially on Fridays. I don't think there were facilities for making tea. The premises where we had to work were practically unheated, and in the winter of 1928-9 was a particularly cold one. All of us were more or less ill. I had a chronic sore throat. Mr. Davidson, an artist who drank, died in the early spring. And um, Sir Henry was at that time buying through his agents anything and everything, almost regardless of its connection with the history of medicine. Coaches, carriages, perambulators, African spears, skeletons, porcelain, Japanese natsuki, all arrived almost daily in huge consignments. And one of the problems was, of course, they couldn't properly catalogue this material. Firstly, because there was so much stuff, they just couldn't penetrate what there already was, never mind keep up with what was coming in. But they needed specialists in almost every subject under the sun in order to properly know what a lot of these things were. And the bottom quote is just going to change because this is um, a guy who showed up to work and wrote a report. No convenience is at my disposal at the present in the present portion of the building. One, no warmth. Two, no gas. Three, no solid bench tables. Four, no water for cleaning sinks and drain boards. Five, no tools, drills or lathes. No electric heating circuit. Six, the concrete floor should be covered in wood. <clears throat> There were about 20 to 40 auction sales were being delivered every month. Um, there was a little fleet of these Ford vans who would, who would bring things to and from the, the auction houses. Although there's regularly correspondence from Sotheby's and Christie's and all the auction houses saying, you've got to come and get your stuff from us. We're not a glorified storage warehouse. You've bought this stuff. It's clogging up our storage. You need to bring it. Um, you need to, you know, you need to take it away. They found boxes in the late 1920s that had been unopened, never looked at since 1905. Um, they once wanted to get to something, and it took them two days to move all the other things to uh, to get to what they wanted. Um, so you can see why people got a little bit fed up working there. Um, but I just wanted to. Um, to tell you about a little exchange between Wellcome and one of his um, 
warehouse attendants. Um, about once or twice a year, Welcome would, would tour his storage facilities and everyone was on their best behaviour for this momentous occasion when he came to see how they were all doing. Um, and this is just a little exchange between one of the attendants and Welcome as he's on his tour. Um, he po Welcome points to a tray. What's in there? He says, only bits and pieces. Welcome says, let me look. He takes the tray and looks in. My life's work, and you call it bits and pieces. Born, I'm fed up with you. Sir, I'm fed up with you too. <laughs> and, he's, and he's demoted. Um, but um, what this shows, of course, is that these things were incredibly precious to welcome and his whole identity was bound up in this project however crazy it might seem to those working on the ground um, and I just wanted to think a bit more about storage and this kind of bound up emotions in, in, in storage facilities um, all museums have huge storage facilities and although we see the kind of the front of the, the displays and the nice things that have been chosen to put behind glass the reality is that it's usually the minority of objects that are on display and that the, the bulk of museums um, holdings are kept in storage facilities um, but we don't really think about storage. Um, it seems to, initially, it seems to imply a kind of dead space, a kind of inert and sometimes felt rather tomb-like, I think, for Welcome's um, staff, but a kind of a lull between two events, that an object's active and then it goes into storage and it's dormant and then it becomes active again. So it's seen as kind of a space where nothing's really happen, nothing's really happening. But... Of course, the things we store, we store them because they're valuable, sometimes because they're too powerful to be, to be seen, to be used, um, because they're worth keeping, because they're worth protecting. And um, personally, I find storage spaces very evocative places. Because the objects are packed away um, and, and hidden in boxes, they have a kind of intensified power, I think, um, you have that feeling that when you can't see things and when you're so close to them and there are so many of them, um, they're kind of surrounding you up to the ceilings, down to the floors. These are very intimate spaces. There's no glass protecting you from the object or the object from you. You can smell things in a way that you can't in a museum. And it and it's often not very, it's not lit in the lovely way that objects are in, in museums. Um, so it can feel like quite a privileged space, um, a, a special space to be. But it can also make you feel quite small and then as and wary, as though you don't know quite what's surrounding you and what might be around the next corner. And I think for welcome, the stores must have been quite a, an, an overwhelming um, place, and certainly for his staff. Um, you can't get a, a perspective. You're surrounded by things. You can't get a clear vision. And it can be kind of impenetrable. I think Welcome's collection became really impenetrable. So the, the problem for Welcome became increasingly how to get this clear vision, um, how to form a narrative out of all the things he had. Um, this is one of Welcome's mo most well-known sayings. I've just put a couple of pictures of him at different stages in his life. 
My plans exist in my mind like a jigsaw puzzle, and gradually I shall be able to piece it together. And I think this is a really interesting little insight for three reasons. Firstly, it shows that he was a very open-minded collector, um, whereas someone like Pitt Rivers chose things he wanted to fill spaces and he knew what his picture was going to be. Welcome didn't know what the picture was going to be. And um, he often said, every little thing helps. You don't know how important it's going to be until you can put the picture together. And so I want everything to just see if it might have a role to play. So he was very open-minded. He was, he was excited and interested in everything the world had to offer him. Um, but also a jigsaw puzzle implies that something can be finished, that there is a picture at the end, a complete picture. He often said, um, um, I want my collection to be as complete as possible which, of course, is impossible because there's always more. There's always more you can get. There's always more to know. Um, collections defy completeness. They're always expanding. Um, but the, the other thing that's interesting about this little phrase is how self-reliant it is. It exists in his mind. And he was a very self-contained um, private person. He didn't write anything down about his collection. The secrecy went right to him, to the heart of him. Um, but it was, he, he felt that pressure, I think, to, to do, the, do the final picture-making himself. Um, he was interestingly positioned in that way because his ambition, his huge competitive instinct and wealth allowed him to employ all these people for him. But then that meant that he was the only one who'd seen it through from the start and only he could kind of take on that role of bringing it all together and having the final say. Um, and you see this in his attitude to his staff. He wouldn't let people publish about the collection. That was for him. Um, so I think it was, he was probably quite a challenging guy to work for um, because he would employ all these experts who, of course, then wanted to engage with the things that they were acquiring, but he wouldn't let people publish. I mean, occasionally things were published, but it was generally... Um, it was all had to wait. It all had to wait till the picture, the, the jigsaw puzzle was finished. Um, he, as I've said, he didn't talk about his plans. He didn't talk about his ideas. Everything had to be done in secrecy until the day when it would all be revealed. And so I think you see him trying to assert his control over this massive industry, really, that he'd collecting business that he'd kind of created. He said that he wanted to create the biggest museum in the country. Um, but it was only in the 1930s, when he was in his 80s, um, that he really started to try and put this vision into practice. And of course then, by that stage, it was just too out of hand, it was just too impenetrable, and he couldn't really get a grip on it. He couldn't get... Um, it was too massive, really, for him to understand. So perhaps there's um, a tension in collecting between these ideas of control and display. You know, on the control side, you have the classifying of things, the ordering of the world, the demonstrating your knowledge, teaching other people, showing off. Um, but then there's the, the, the discovery, the delights of not knowing what's around the corner, um, 
all the unexpected directions that collections can take you in and can question your assumptions things don't fit into the categories that you would like to put them into and they they and collecting takes you on travels it takes you to new places it takes you to meeting new people um, so I think this is where Wellcome got stuck <laughs> between these two things. He didn't have either the confidence or the time to to share his treasures, to have get them under control. And instead, you see him creating these massive mechanisms, really, for hiding things. Premises, staff, money, all that time and effort into these locations that people couldn't, couldn't get into. And of course, those, those places were holding his own identity safe. They were holding his past safe, all those little bits and pieces that made up his life. Um, and it also, of course, promises great things, promises great things for the future. Um, but the problem was that he was just too busy enjoying buying things. And I think it's much, it was much more fun to buy things than to try and deal with the great mass of stuff that you've already got. There's always that idea of a grander adventure on the horizon. Um, so with all that in mind, this is the last group of objects I want to show you. And it's the contents of Welcome's pockets when he died. Um, because these objects are caught in that moment of living. Um, they remind us of the immediacy of his everyday life, just the little things, the little bits and pieces that made up his everyday life. And they bring us a little bit closer to him, to the kind of man he was, um, to the kind of life he led. Um, but they also point to tomorrow and the next day when he'd need his glasses and his watch and a bit of loose change and the unknown future around the corner, um, the new adventures that lay in wait. And I think the collection is really like the contents of his pockets. It's kind of was frozen at his death in that moment of time. And it was only then that his trustees had to really try and and get to grips with, with what he'd created and um, start sorting through it and unfortunately throwing things away and, and, and thankfully giving things away. Um, so I just thought I'd finish with a few more memories of welcome from his staff. He always managed to convey his vision of great things in the future to his staff, and it was this alone which kept us with him for the appalling working conditions, the irritation and embarrassments of anonymity and pseudo-secrecy, together with the apparently unending task of sorting vast and ever-growing quantities of materials, often made our loyalty seem misguided. Welcome was one of those who found the journey more interesting than the end, and one of the things about Sir Henry Wellcome was that he never thought he would die. Thank you.